Hi, this is Aaron Eisberg Nog from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Beyond Trek. You can follow them on Twitter at Beyond Trek Pod and on Facebook at Beyond Trek Productions. This is Beyond Trek Podcast, your source for Star Trek on social media and around the web. I'm Big J. I'm Watney. And I'm Dag, the Trivia Master. You can find us on Facebook at Beyond Trek Podcast and on Twitter at Beyond Trek Pod. The show you're about to hear features music performed by Meridian Studio Orchestra and licensed to music video distributors on behalf of BSS Records, Inc. Beyond Track makes no claim to any of the copyrighted or trademark materials used herein. No infringement intended. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. I'm going to bring you a little retro on what we did for the motion picture when it celebrated its 40th anniversary in theaters. So without further ado, let's jump into the middle of it. Star Trek Motion Picture celebrated its 40th anniversary here recently, and the movie came back into theaters for a limited release. Star Trek Motion Picture kind of gets a bad rap for being uh, nicknamed the motionless picture, kind of kind of slow and, and meandering. But I don't know. I, I, I don't think I can really agree with that because when this came out, and this was December 7th, 1979, Sci-fi at that time, aside from Star Wars, I think was a little more like that. I, I, I mean, I was young then. I was two. I didn't see it. But it just seems like for some reason, Star Trek motion picture just, just gets a bad reputation. Personally, I like the film. It is pretty good, in my opinion. But it comes from a time when exposition and dialogue were more appreciated than you may find in today's more action-oriented films sort of a tell-not-show method. Kinda. I mean, don't get me wrong, the motion picture has a lot to show. But it was also Star Trek, and Star Trek has, at least in this era, been a little bit more, or at least taken a little bit more of a cerebral turn by trying to explain some of the heavier philosophical nuances of this installment. Well, it really seemed like it, it got a lot of inspiration off 2001. That's exactly the point. You hit it on the head, and that's quoted in the trivia. Right. So, you know, it, it got its inspiration from 2001, a space odyssey. And I think that, especially right now, this day and age, we're, we're so used to the uh, kind of pew, pew, pew action sort of thing. And then looking back at the motion picture, it's just not a lot. There's not enough fighting, not enough shooting, et cetera, et cetera. I believe that Chris Pine himself. Um, in an interview after one of the J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek films came out, that cerebral Star Trek in the current entertainment world doesn't really work. It doesn't um, work. Fans are looking for something vastly different, more action-based, and arguably more character-driven than a lot of the stories that Star Trek presented. Well, I think it fit for the time, and, and that's kind of the point we're making there. And I mean, the first time you saw the Enterprise on the big screen, now that was a great sequence. It's kind of a long sequence, 
I kind of like that. I think you've got to put yourself back into what it was like then for the movie. So this is a, a show, and I, I really believe, I, I want to say that Star Trek was one of the first, or one of the first few of the shows that started out as a television series and then made it onto the big screen. So to, to go from seeing the show in the 60s, uh, it was big, on, uh, big in reruns uh, in the 70s, and then on the big screen, seeing the new Enterprise and, and all of that, I mean, that had to be pretty exciting. Oh, I love that sequence. It's a great time. Yeah. Personally, I think, like, one thing that really spoke out to me was the style change from the uh, 60s television show. A lot of contrasting colors and matte finish to all these shining and blinking lights and a lot of silvery chrome feel. And that also kind of translated into the uniforms a bit, I think, too. It did. Oh, yeah, for the, the space pajamas. There's nothing wrong with space PJs. Everybody needs their space PJs. They look very comfortable. One of the things I really love about this film is the way that, you know, we talked about there being a lot of exposition in the beginning and, in, and throughout the movie. But um, some of the things that get conveyed are wordlessly conveyed through imagery. That scene where Scotty and Kirk are doing the, the beauty sequence around the new Enterprise, it's refit. We are, for the first time, really getting a sense of the scale of people to this starship. Like, tiny little people are out there arc welding on pieces. This starship is massive. And then this massive starship encounters V'ger. And V'ger makes this massive starship look like a shrimp. It did. It just conveys a sense of scale to the audience that... You know, that one line, it's over 82 AU in diameter. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody has a concept of what 82 AU is. And by What's the way, an listening, 82 AUs was in the original uh, release. They changed it to 2 AU for uh, television. And AU is an astronomical unit, and that is the distance from the Earth to the sun. Just to clarify, I believe when they were measuring, when they used the AU units, they were talking about the cloud generated by the V'ger ship, not the ship itself. Correct. Correct. It was Spock who made the discovery about an object at the heart of the cloud later, but at the time it was just the cloud. They said the cloud measured uh, 82 AUs, and in the director's cut, it, it was much more believable. Like, okay, I can take two. You know, you got to take that 80 out. That's just, that, that, was, that was overkill. But keep in mind, 2 AU is the circumference of Earth's orbit. Like, not the measurement of it, but V'ger is as big as the Earth on both sides of the sun. At That's a lot. That's how big V'ger is. It takes us six months to get that far, and V'ger just <laughs> is. Well, and I, I was talking about the, because uh, I would like to know, and Dag, have you seen, before being on the big screen, have you seen the director's cut? Of Star Trek the motion picture and I ask that because I'm assuming that if they put anything on the big screen 30th 40th anniversary whatever that it would be the director's cut it was actually the theatrical cut from people who saw oh, it okay so the the 30th was the full-on raw theatrical cut the 30th and um from this latest release people that I know who went and saw it said it really? was the theatrical so cut even for the 40th it did now that surprises yeah. me so the director's cut was a home video yep, I watched it. project. They did it for the, the DVD releases. Um, I think it might have even been on the Laserdisc, but uh, it, it was not expanded to modify the theatrical. Okay, deals. and that's a shame because I, I really think 
anyone who watches the director's cut of the motion picture would probably think very differently of this movie because when I saw the director's cut, and I, and I didn't dislike the motion picture before I saw the director's cut, but when I saw that, it was like this big light bulb went off. There was this, oh, okay, I get it now. I understand it because I'm, I'm a very meat and potatoes kind of guy when I'm watching a movie. Uh, I like to understand the plot, where they're going, what they're doing. And in the theatrical, there was just this sense of, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know where they're at or what they're doing. But then when we get to the director's cut, uh, there were just things that made so much more sense. And one of the, the biggest ones I really liked, this was in the uh, theatrical, I'm sorry, this was in the director's, not theatrical, but in the director's cut, once V'ger gets to the, uh, gets to Earth. Now, if you remember in theatrical, they talk about the cloud dissipating. And then like, you know, they, you know they're inside something, but what they did was in the director's cut, they actually showed the external <clears throat> view of a V'ger of, of the ship, which I really appreciated that because that shows you this is what the Enterprise is inside of this large vessel. The cloud was just a cloud. I'm not sure what purpose it actually served. Adding on to that, um, just personally for me, I feel like the thing that really offered a sense of scale was the ship itself rather than the cloud because um, especially with things like TNG and later Star Trek series, like they go into nebulas a lot and those always dwarf the ship in terms of scale. So the cloud, um, one, I almost never heard the uh, 82 or 2 AU, like that line almost always passed me by. So what offered me the true sense of scale was when it went over the ship itself. Well, yeah, and it's it's massive, so so that was good. Yeah, I would recommend if, if anyone has not seen the motion picture, if you can get a hold of the director's cut, it certainly makes more sense. Uh, there were just there were a lot of things, a lot of plot elements, etc., that uh, kind of fell into place for me on on that. So favorite scenes. Anyone got a favorite scene of that movie? Oh boy. Um, honestly, we really just talked about the that that ship scene where they fly around the ship. That's a great beauty shot. Um, seeing the Klingons in makeup for the first time. And sparked one of the largest debates, largest and longest running debates and uh, theories and so forth. Canon. Yeah. And Canon. Oh my God. Canon it, issues. That, that is what the motion picture gave us. Whatever you think <laughs> about that movie, it is notorious for sparking just a, a huge outcry about you know what does this mean and what does this mean in canon what what happened why do they have ridges and gene roddenberry's we just had a larger budget we had a bigger budget so that's just what we did yeah seeing the ridges and klingons back then they had they sold the short hair they weren't characterized as a proud warrior race until um yeah, it was like after Star Trek Four came around, but Star Trek Four was in was filmed when D, uh, TNG was in pre production, and TNG did a lot of the world building on the Klingons that was accepted into or sort of retconned into Star Trek's Four Five. Additionally, six. the Klingon ridges or lack thereof was addressed in DS Nine and later in Enterprise. They made it worse. <laughs> yeah, just when you think that, just when you think that maybe the fans <laughs> were just going to accept that 
it was just an increase in budget. The stuff looks better. We have money. We can have uniforms. We can do ships. Okay, <laughs> fine. So, yeah. Trials and tribulations comes around and get, makes it freaking Just canon that they the didn't have ridges. Oh my god! <laughs> I thought it was fine. They but they riled up everybody again. It was like no. You finally, after all these years, you got the Star Trek fans to calm down about the the flipping difference in Klingons from the '60s to the movie era, and now you go and acknowledge in canon that there was a difference. Oh boy! So it just started up again. Considering the project they were undertaking with Trials and Tribulations, it was unavoidable. Well, they could have just not, they could have ignored it. They could have just absolutely not said anything about it. Or what they could have done, I would have loved this, if uh, those scenes in the past there, that Worf looked like the Klingons then, just out of nowhere, but they didn't say anything about it. Just move, you know, move along on the episode. There's, he, he did not get modified in makeup or anything by Dr. Bashir is just those scenes. Suddenly Michael Dorn is, is dressed up looking like a sixties Klingon and it is not acknowledged one bit. I think that would have been a big like mind twist for everyone. Which arguably would have done the same thing. Yeah, maybe you're right. So I'm, I'm getting us in the weeds here. Sorry. Let's pull this boat right back into the motion picture again. Pretty shots. What was your, what was the best scene? What were some grandstanding scenes? <laughs> right, right. So, Tato, how about you? What, what is your favorite part of the motion picture? That is a very, very hard decision. Um, I like the scene at the end of the movie with Decker and Ilea and the whole V'ger cloud getting dissipated and the Enterprise flying over Earth. That was pretty good. Beautiful scene. Also, an unpopular opinion, I like the wormhole scene. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, why do you say unpopular? Because I'm, I can't say that I've ever seen anyone bark about that scene. Well, I feel like it might be unpopular because it, it does contribute to um, the whole droning on stereotype of the film. And also, I feel like the dialogue was like, what was, when it was digitally and like audio, audibly stretched out, it was hard to interpret in some ways. Mr. Chekhov, stand by on phasers. No! Belay that phaser order. For time torpedo! Yeah! Just when you thought there was a scene that needed to be stretched out in slow motion for the film to be a <laughs> yeah, tiny that's bit longer. And that's when Decker almost got... Two hours and ten minutes! Well, yeah, and that's when Decker almost got shit-canned and kicked off the ship. And Mr. Decker coming to my office. And I think that's one of the things that I uh, kind of appreciate about uh, the motion picture and his portrayal of Kirk. Because he has been out of, uh, you know, out of space uh, off a ship for... 18 months. So there's, there's an 18 month gap between the end of the five year mission and when he's on the enterprise. So, uh, not only is he, I don't want to say stale or rusty, but this is a completely redesigned and rebuilt ship. And he just dove right into taking command of it. And he didn't know the capabilities of it or, or how it was redesigned. And yeah, Decker was right. You know, if, if he hadn't done that, Kirk would have 
got them all killed. Did. I think that did Decker wrong. Well, yeah, you, you know, gets himself demoted. You know, the uh, the big chief came in and, and knocked him down a notch. But I think it was needed because honestly, if if Kirk didn't do that, then Earth would have been gone. I do not think Decker could have got them through that or or save the day. For all his faults, <laughs> Kirk's the captain you need. I'm still thinking about like really magnificent shots. The the probe effect was really cool. Um the sequence where Spock enters V'ger in the little thruster pack and just sees that interior, just this vast interior with these haunting and unusual objects. Um, just really cool effects there. It reminded me of, um, rather, this latter movie reminded me of that sequence when, you know, Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith enter the alien vessel in Independence Day. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That that Independence Day kind of did feel like it was kind of an, uh, an homage to the Enterprise entering V'ger. Just a little bit. Also, I mean... Uh, not very often seen effect in the movie. The Enterprise going to warp. Yes, that was... It, think about it. Th th you're in the theater in 1979, and you see the, the warp effect for the first time, the Enterprise going to warp, and it's that. What do, what are you thinking? Let's put ourselves back in 1979. What are we thinking? Oh, my God, there's so much color. <laughs> right, there's so much color, and it's like, wow, that's... Well, because we had never seen what it looks like for a ship to go to warp. So you've got to imagine, even if you're in the, on the production side, you're, you're tasked with, okay, so we're going to have an external scene of the Enterprise going to warp. What does that look like? I'm sure as a, you know, whether it's animator, special effects, whatnot, I'm probably thinking, oh my God, I have no idea what a ship going to warp would look like. I mean, they, I guess they could use Star Wars as a reference because Star Wars... Uh, came out two years prior to this, and um, you know they don't have warp, but they have the uh, uh, hyperspace, uh, you know hyperspace jump, so they have something to go off of. But that must have been a, a a real, a real daunting privilege. Is okay. What does it look like when the Enterprise in Star Trek goes to warp? Yeah, the effects designers definitely had uh, a burden to bear with that. We have to put something together that looks visually astounding, looks futuristic, but also can be done with, compared to today, analog tech. Right, and also something that is going to be, basically, this is going to be something that is, I, I, do I want to say history making? Like the, the way that we show this is going to be very profound in Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think our effects engineers still are, are burdened with those tasks. Um, every super gigantic summer flick that comes out is effects heavy. And these effects artists have a lot of pressure um, to deliver groundbreaking effects you remember when the matrix came out and how often we talked about bullet time oh my god yes. it was just like 70 cameras in a circle that were filmed in slow motion and then digital effects were used to connect 
each of those frames. Yeah. Oh, well, that was big back then. Yeah, that was big. And, you know, Lord of the Rings had some pretty awesome effects. Uh, Lord of the Rings was groundbreaking in terms of motion capture, um, which we would call deep fake tech today, probably. But that's another story. I would. I mean, yeah, all the, the deep fake stuff. Yeah, that, that's like a whole other podcast episode by itself. But yeah, the effects artists in motion picture, no doubt, had had audience appeal they needed to work towards because it had been 10 years since star trek was on the air we'd had the animated series we'd had the original series in syndication and in those 10 years we invented fandom <laughs> <laughs> and oh whether the, the trekkies for the good or for the bad were the original yeah the trekkies were the original rabid fan people um yeah it was incredible and so you had the fans who were going to be flocking to this movie in droves you had people who were friends of the fans who were like, what is up? Okay, I'll go. Just stop talking about it, please. Right. Um, you know, um, generations of people would be really... bored to death by their, their spouse, significant other or friend <laughs> dragging them to Star Trek. Somewhere out there, there's like an old man who's still shaking going, she liked it so much. She screamed so loud. <laughs> how, how, many, how many nights do you think that, that Gene Roddenberry sat awake at night at his table, glass of whiskey by him, just asking himself, what have I done? <laughs> Zero, because he was swimming in his piles of right, money. Right, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I, that reminds me of, uh, uh, so I had dragged my sister um, when, I, when I was a kid to go see Star Trek V. And I, I had no idea that Star Trek V was going to be a not good movie. Uh, and, and she'll tell you, you know, to this day, the way she tells the story is she w wanted to just shoot herself or like pull her eyes out or, or something. And, you know, it's like, okay, I, I kind of get it because if you're not a fan and you're really not into Star Trek, that's the worst movie to have to take someone to. Unpopular opinion. I like Star Trek five. Get out, get out. I'm going to edit out all of your parts. Well, we're going to have to kick out Big J, Tato, because I'm on your side. <gasps> what? Even more unpopular opinion. Oh, my. This is a, is this hey, a coup? Hey, for the listeners, Star Trek V is canon proof that we still have screen tees in the 23rd century, okay? Wow. Okay. Because <laughs> that, that shirt that Kirk is wearing on the bridge says something like, I'd rather be camping or something. I thought it said, go climb a rock. Probably. <laughs> oh, oh, well, you know. A potato, potato, right? We'll let the listeners comment on the post and tell us who's right and who's wrong because I'm trying to do this from memory. But in any case, it screen tease. Like, I live and die by screen tease. To answer my own question, my favorite scene of the movie, that's that's tough. That's really tough because I like the going to warp the first time. I, I like the uh, the shots, the, the beginning shot of, uh, you know, the 32-minute um, sequence of seeing the Enterprise redesigned for the first time. Um, and you know, the wormhole thing, I would have to say, if I had to pick something that you guys didn't pick that I thought was a good scene, I would have to say that I like the part where the probe was on the bridge and was doing its little, you know, lightning hand thing on the, on the console and, um, Decker couldn't get to it to shut it down. And, and Spock just pulls Decker the hell out of the way. It does the the Kirk Fu double fist pound right on the right on the console. 
I, I don't know. I just I always thought that was badass of Spock to do that. It was just like and 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 totally unexpected. It was just like, no, stop that. You don't get to know everything about us just yet. <laughs> but I mean, it it was like, and and you remember Kirk's reaction to that when he saw Spock do that. But he's right. I mean, you know, well, I'll just go smash the hell out of this console. That'll turn it off. And Viger was pretty ticked about it and sent him over a rail. Yeah, Viger. Well, Viger thought he was a carbon unit damaging. Enterprise. Enterprise was the 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 life form, the real life form, according to Viger. Right. Yeah. So so Viger saw this carbon based life form doing damage to uh, basically the the real quote unquote person that right. was the ship. Yeah. Um. Just a side note. Uh, interesting thought. I think that Spock smashing that console is what prompted the Ilea probe to call the carbon based units an infestation. Yes, if if it wasn't thought before that, that definitely sold it. Could be, could be. I'm I'm pretty good on that. Yeah. So I would have to say that that's yeah yeah. I kind of I kind of like that scene. I, I think that was certainly badass. <clears throat> excuse me, badass of Spock. Uh, what do you think about the conclusion? There's really there's really no bad guy in this movie star trek 2 had con star trek 3 had crude star trek 4 had i don't know the punk on the bus star trek 5 <laughs> uh obviously star trek 5 has the klingon whose name we don't remember and then god um and, and star trek 6 had a, a conspiracy of of starfleet and klingon officers conspiring together um but this movie it doesn't have, it has an antagonist, sure. V'ger, the Ilea probe, they definitely are an antagonist. But this movie is, in my opinion, remarkable because it doesn't have a bad guy. And just like Star Trek Four, they didn't win the day by blowing something up. Correct. They Absolutely. had to find, they had to find the right answer. And in the end, they gave the antagonist what it needed to fulfill its mission. They didn't stop it. They didn't turn it away. They just said, oh, you want this and the kind of the way you're going about it is really dangerous and damaging. But uh, yeah, here's this guy over here. I just demoted like an hour ago. Go ahead and take him with you. <laughs> Sorry, Decker, you drew the short scraw. <laughs> Please have my first officer. I watched your father die. So you might as well too. Uh, fun fact for those listening. Two hours in real time, 58 hours in canon time. And, and for anyone wondering, what am I talking about? So the Doomsday Machine, Matthew Decker, who was the Commodore uh, of the ship that got uh, destroyed by Doomsday Machine. So basically it is a, a accepted canon that he's Will's father. And Roddenberry referred to as much in the production notes for the motion picture. That's a shame. So Kirk basically presided over the... Uh... What did the Deckers do to the Kirks, man? Yeah, what did the Deckers do to the Kirks? <laughs> Long-standing kind of... Federation feud between the Deckers and the Kirks. <laughs> like the Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, but we, know, we know who won that one because McCoy serves on the Enterprise and there are no oh, Hatfields yeah. in Star Trek. <laughs> right. Not a, not a single Hatfield has made it into, into Star Trek. So yeah, the McCoys won that one and the Kirks won that battle. Not having a face-to-face -face villain, there are times where it, it works and it has its place. And for the motion picture, it was very much a, a, a it's not going to be a villain type of movie. Like this is a, this is a mystery. This is something that we have to solve together. And in the end, 
you have, uh, you know, quote unquote, the birth of a new life form, this, this joining of the human and basically an artificial intelligence. Of course, everyone's trying to retcon and, and fit that into this was the start of the Borg. It was not, uh, as was pretty much proven later, it's, it's its own thing. And I, I think that's fine. Now, there have been some very good villains in Star Trek. If you're looking for someone to put, or, or something to put a face on the villainy, sure, there's Khan, and, and Khan was great. Khan was great. Crude uh, uh, in Star Trek III. Christopher Lloyd just nailed it with that character. Loved it. Then you get to Star Trek IV, where it's not, quote-unquote, a, a villain. And I don't even know if I'm going to call the whale probe an antagonist. It was just a... It was trying to communicate, and the communication was disrupting everything. Uh, but that was another... To me, that felt like a very classic Star Trek, a... We've, we've got to work together. Let's split up in teams. We've got a, a problem to solve, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a next-gen movie where, uh, you know, the, the end of every movie is uh, Picard's got to strip down to his, his uh, you know, T-shirt and, and fight some, some big bad, which, uh, you know, because we were in the action era of, of Star Trek. And maybe it worked then for that, but... I don't know. I, I, I like that the motion picture didn't try to do like a, a, a just a straight antagonist kind of thing. I can agree with that word. I mean, it, it totally fit, uh, you know, and now if, if that, if the motion picture were made today, then the final scenes would have involved uh, Kirk somehow being down to nothing but his uh, sleeveless shirt in a life and death fist fight with, with Decker. Uh, and or Ilea, it, it would have been a some kind of fist fight sort of thing, and you know that that's. I mean, do you really think that that was what the movie needed? We don't need to turn Kirk into Goku, <laughs> right? His uniform tearing days were were over at that point. Nice reference to Decker's hair getting all wildly flying about during the merging sequence. Yes, yes, very good uh, Goku reference. He slid in there, very very sly, Tato. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's going Goku. I don't even want to like build on that because I'd turn into a Dragon Ball fanboy in like instantly. Yeah, let's not do that. Let's keep the common units will now ask the questions to favor each other. So all in all, I think the the fortieth anniversary of Star Trek, the, the motion picture. I I really wish we would have uh, made it to be able to see it in in person. Um, but honestly, you know, they did the theatrical release, and we've, we've all seen that. Would have been nice to see on the big screen, and um, we're, we're going to have to do that for the 50th, because I'm sure they will do that for the 50th. Ten years later! Yeah. <laughs> all in all, to kind of wrap up the, uh, the whole thing, for me, personally, I like the motion picture. I, I think it's misunderstood. I believe that we are... Um... Jay, did you hear that? Oh, we're being attacked. <laughs> it's V'ger. I'm being taken by V'ger. Ah. The carbon units will now answer questions to favor V'ger. Do the carbon units comply? We do comply. I mean, sure. Welcome to this next round in Star Trek trivia. I'm the host, V'ger. <laughs> I like it. A little relaxed after my uh, my merging with, uh, with Decker. It's been cool for us. I got two carbon units on the line, Big J and Tato. I'm going to ask them some questions, and hopefully I don't assimilate Earth. First question. Which fast food chain made the motion picture the basis for its first kids' meals? 
McDonald's. Yep. Motion picture appeared on Happy Meals when McDonald's released the Happy Meal in 1979. Tata was like negative 18? Negative 21, negative 22? Something like that. All right, so next question. What fan favorite former member of the Obsidian Order was considered for the role? Incorrect. Tato is correct. Andrew Robinson. Andrew Robinson? Auditioned for the role. As of of Decker? Hell yeah. What at that too? (laughs) All right. That would have been a very different commanding officer. (laughs) Yeah, you think? Kirk would have found his way into a photon torpedo tube and he would have liked it. He would have been lost (laughs) to that asteroid that was in the wormhole. Uh, all right. Uh, next next question. question. Originally, the sequence on Vulcan in which Spock is taking uh, the Kulinar was supposed to be filmed among Turkish ruins on site, but it was too difficult to do that. So which U.S. national park did they move the production to for that scene? The Grand Canyon? Yosemite. Incorrect. Incorrect. The carbon units uh, are marked one point down or something. Dang it. Uh, it's actually Yellowstone. Oh, I should have said Yellowstone. Those scenes were filmed the height of summer tourism, and park officials said they could film there so long as they stayed on the footboards to avoid damaging any of the natural features. Well, I know Yosemite was used in Star Trek V, and for some reason I thought, okay, maybe they did that in the motion picture, but no, I was way off. Next question. So, uh, we all know that uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, sort of manifested out of what was supposed to be a new Star Trek television show. In this Star Trek television show, Leonard Nimoy declined to reprise his role of Spock. So there was a new Vulcan. What was the name of that character that never saw the light of day? That was Sonak. That was not Sonak. <gasps> no! Tato, um, you can take the steal right now. I think Tato died. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. That's okay. That's okay. The score is still 1 1. Uh, Veacher has two points. So you're, one of you has to get the fifth question, or the world's assimilated. It's the end of the game. The science officer's name was Zon. X O N. Oh, damn. That's right. The actor who was to play Zon appeared in the motion picture as uh, one of the members of the fateful transporter accident. Yes. Oh, so. Enterprise. What we got back didn't live long, fortunately. I'm so. Oh, God. All right. Zahn. Yeah, that's going to. And I knew that. I knew that. For all our listeners thinking uh, Big J does not know his trivia, I did know that. The fifth question. Is sort of a more of a speculative question on Gene Roddenberry's part. After filming the notorious Next Generation second season episode "Q Who," Gene Roddenberry speculated that V'ger may somehow be related to what? Nemesis. V'ger has to go to the bathroom. We forfeit. You got it. Nope. It's two points for both of you. So the score is tied. What? No, I said it yeah, first. Yeah, no, you both get. Oh, because he got. It's both of you versus me. Oh. oh, okay. I get it now. I'm backing you up, man. Tata, we have to work together now. Now that I know that that's what's going on. So 
We need to have a tiebreaker. All right, let's do it. I have it. an idea. What? Carbon-based unit has an idea for V'ger. Okay, so basically, I'm going to ask the question, and if V'ger doesn't get it right, the point goes to me and Big J. Ooh. I will comply. All right, so, as previously mentioned, Star Trek The Motion Picture was originally going to be a debut episode for a second Star Trek TV show named Star Trek II. What was the episode's working title? Oh, wow. I know this one. Vija has to go to the bathroom. We forfeit. <laughs> oh. For those of you who are curious, the name was In Thy Image. Oh, yes. Dang it. Oh, man. Right. Yep. Yep. So close. It's a very good round of trivia. Uh, for those of you listening, this is actually Dag, the Trivia Master. I'm not really V'ger. For those of you who were afraid that I had been taken by V'ger, don't worry. Trivia will continue with the Trek podcast. And it's not Mirror Dag. Oh, please don't mention his name. Oh, yeah, we, we, will, we shall. You don't have to talk about Mirror Dag, but you can check him out on Beyond Trek's Fragged. At your own risk. He, now, that's a villain right there. Yeah, he's my nemesis. Yes. He's my Thomas Riker. What, what? Listen to Fragged by Mirror Dag. I kind of want to go off on a tangent about what I think about the pure concept of V'ger and his mission. My general opinion of the motion picture was that the concept was fantastic, but the execution was subpar. So, you know, I think, like, to give this cloud more of a silver lining. Ha, you see what it did there? Uh, oh, I got it. I got Yeah, I almost missed it because I blinked. It's a, it's a cloud. We start off when Kirk and companions walk out to the central core of V'ger and find that it was the last in a series of Voyager satellites released by 20th Century Earth. Its initial mission, when discovered by this alien race, was to acquire all information possible and return to sender. The alien race that found it built this massive starship, capable of generating a weaponized cloud, apparently, in order for it to fulfill its base programming, because they treated it like an absolute. It gathered so much information while traveling back to Earth from the other side of the universe that it achieved consciousness itself, to a certain extent, as it grew. And when it got back to Earth, one of the main reasons that it couldn't return to Sender was because the Sender's frequencies were no longer usable by the Federation for some reason. Like, they couldn't intake all of that information, which really confused me. In order to understand- in order to evolve beyond its- pure machine state, it needed to be able to transcend logic, as Kirk was discussing with McCoy and Spock at the time, and so it merged with Matt Decker, and it could have become something akin to that of a Q, like a godlike being never to be seen again. And I just thought that if In Thy Image had been released and the Star Trek II series had actually happened, being able to hash that story out in a, perhaps a 45-minute standard episode, or even like a 60-70-minute to 70 minute feature, would have been a lot more interesting. <laughs> well, and you know what I've been wanting, and I don't know if this is overdoing it or if it needs to happen, but I would like for either Star Trek Online, which has been great about picking up these, these threads of stories that were kind of dropped but never really fleshed out or finished. I would love it if either they or uh, one of the upcoming series like uh, Star Trek Picard or even somehow Discovery, I uh, would you guys want to know exactly who got a hold of this this probe and, and created the ship, created the cloud, created V'ger? I absolutely would. That'd be so cool. Well, non-canon source, The Return, 
actually connects it to the Borg. Yeah, I read that. Yep, yep. It was it was good. It was a very interesting thing. They said the reason they didn't assimilate Spock was Spock had already melded with V'ger and hence was already part of the collective. Absolutely. Yet Spock was uh, kind of... Honorary Borg. S- yeah, side-grandfathered into the Borg. <laughs> into the it's like the drones walk up to him and then they all pat him on the shoulders. Hey, man, welcome home. How you doing? Want a drink? Right, right. Well, yeah, what's up, my man? <laughs> also, um, if I may... I think another reason that V'ger didn't want to bond with Spock over someone like Decker is that Spock, due to his acceptance of his Vulcan heritage, was trying to achieve a state of total logic. Something that V'ger had already achieved and was attempting to transcend in the first place. Oh. Oh. It Freaking already, carbon units. It already had all that. It needed a human, like a full human quality. Yeah. Spock did not have anything to offer. You, you took me right out of my shoes. Here's another fun fact, because I'm full of them. Star Trek, uh, the motion picture, the overtures that were for the trailers and, and pre- previews, uh, those were overvoiced by Orson Welles. So the the the, the premieres and st- or the, the previews and the commercials had a narrative, and Orson Welles was the voice of those narratives. So so yeah, Star Trek, the motion picture. Watch it, please. It's it's misunderstood, but it's still a good movie. If you can get a hold of the director's cut, I would certainly recommend that. Uh, but it's it's good. Put that in your watch list. Star Trek motion picture. And thanks to the audience for choosing Beyond Trek. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Trek Pod, on Facebook at Beyond Trek Productions, and now introducing our new Patreon where you can support us at patreon.com slash join slash beyond trek. The Star Trek The Motion Picture Score Suite presented in this podcast was composed by Jerry Goldsmith and is not owned by Beyond Trek. Other sound effects were found on freesound.org. Beyond Trek podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.